I thought I'd start by uh, reading a brief statement and then we'll go into mm. a um, more informal conversation. Inspired by the compelling image of an Aboriginal protest outside Australia House in the 1920s, some years ago I set out to piece together the story of the remarkable Indigenous Australian protester who carried it out. In many ways, A.M. Fernando's itinerant life and his political career overseas has brought into question our previous understanding of the possibilities of Australian Aboriginal agency in the first half of the 20th century. While other Aboriginal activists of his generation were also increasingly international in their outlook, up until now it's been assumed, quite reasonably, that so-called policies of protection from the late 19th century, designed to manage every aspect of Aboriginal men and women's lives, would have made it impossible for Aboriginal people to travel the world independently in this era, let alone to speak out against British colonial rule from the streets of Europe. And yet in the 1920s and 30s, this is exactly what happened. Outside Australia House, an Aboriginal man wearing small toy skeletons pinned around his shoulders protested Aboriginal conditions on the Australian frontier. How and why this came about provided the inspiration for my book, The Lone Protester. As I was able to uncover in the process of writing that book, a slim but moving archive has survived in several countries, revealing a number of other original political actions undertaken by Fernando, including a creative letter of petition he wrote before leaving Australia, his exploitation of the Swiss press in 1921, his various embodied performances as a protester and public speaker in Italy and London, and his outspoken courtroom testimony on two occasions in England during the late 1920s and again in the late 1930s when he was already in his 60s and 70s. These precious sources complement and sometimes contradict a range of official documents initiated by his activities from a wartime inquiry by the colonial office into his status as an internee in Austria as, uh, to an Australian investigation branch report of his international accusations against Britain and Australia in Europe in the 1920s, to a series of fascinating police documents surrounding his arrest in Italy in 1925. And then we have the accounts and recollections of various sympathisers and employers who met him in London and recollections of various uh, who met him in London and wrote about him in letters to each other at the time or recorded their recollections decades later. Many of these second-hand reports of Fernando's own words have provided invaluable insights into the ways in which he sought to explain to them his trajectory out of Australia and the inspirations of his lifelong mission on behalf of his mother's people. Lawyers Douglas Jones and FM Corshaw were two of his great supporters and it's wonderful to have some of their descendants here tonight in the audience and I'd like to thank them um, in particular for the generosity with family archives and memories and it's wonderful to see you both here. In the process of recovering the story of Aim Fernando, I've had to learn about a wide range of complementary histories. Following his lead has required developing a greater understanding of the diversity of non-white populations as well as Aboriginal people in Australia in the 19th century and their capacity to cross back and forth over the colony's relatively porous borders. 
I've learned more about the Port of Sydney, where Fernando said he was born in the, in the 1860s, in Woolloomooloo, right on Sydney Harbour in April 1864, to be exact. And more about the conditions he saw as a middle-aged man just before he left Australia for good on the so-called second frontier in the first years of the 20th century, among Aboriginal people struggling to survive police violence near a gold mining township in central Western Australia. In order to grasp the possibilities and limits of his life in Europe, I've needed to find out about internment in World War I Austria, about the progressive press in interwar Switzerland, and London street markets in the 1920s, uh, and black speakers at Hyde Park Corner, where Fernando also spoke in the 1930s. I've had to find out about early fascist Italy, and the Australians who attended an international Roman Catholic Jubilee in Rome in 1925 and seemed to have been instrumental in Fernando's arrest outside the front of St Peter's, where he was handing out literally thousands of flyers calling for an intervention in Australia. The list goes on, but you'll need to read the book. <laughs> Despite some very exciting breakthroughs along the way, with the help of some wonderful research assistants in England, Austria and Italy, it's also the case that much is still unknown about this remarkable man and likely to remain so. Working with sometimes flimsy evidence, I've added a dash of, a good dash of informed conjecture and supposition in order to create something of the person who was Fernando, that is, the historical figure who was a highly active protester and commentator of world affairs and who's become known to me, a non-Indigenous historian, rather in the way as he became known to various white audiences in Australia and Europe, who during his lifetime he sought to educate in the reality of the Aboriginal question. The real Fernando behind this figure on my reading remains appropriately elusive. Independence and mobility were after all the central features of his life and I think he continues to escape us today. What we can say with some certainty is that Fernando was a man of many parts, not only a protester but a complex individual with a variety of views on the contemporary world. While a vehement critic of racist attitudes towards the Aboriginal people and himself, for example, he was also, as a Roman Catholic influenced by contemporary progressive thought, inclined to apply his own racialising outlook towards the world around him. On the one hand, he commended Indians and Sri Lankans as well as Australian Aboriginal people for what he considered to be their innate cultural sensibilities. On the other, he condemned much of what he observed in London's multi-ethnic depression streets, including its Jewish presence for its supposed immorality and ungodliness. Um, and that's a difficult side of the story, of course. Um, and he was making these observations from around about this very area, right here we are in Bishop's Gate. For a while in the late 1920s, he was a resident of the Salvation Army Men's Hostel in Middlesex Street, just around the corner. And on his daily travels, he visited Crisp Street Market, Gun Street, both near Spittlesfield Market, and Petticoat Lane, as well as small curbside markets along Goulston Street, Wentworth Street, Drum Street, and then down along Commercial Road at Watney Street. So he was a regular in this area recognised on its streets and it seems often tormented by children and um, moochers deployed to keep itinerant street, street traders as much as possible out of the larger markets. 
Finally, um, while A.M. Fernando was undoubtedly a remarkable individual whose actions should become far more widely known, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that he is much a part of a much larger history, a much larger story of Aboriginal Australian political activism and intellectual thought. Although he is perhaps unique in carrying out the majority of his protests in isolation on the other side of the world, Fernando's story contributes to a vibrant history of Aboriginal resistance carried out by members of his own generation from within Australia. Nor, I think, should Fernando in Europe be interpreted simply as a tragic figure living in self-imposed exile. He was also an energetic street trader, a labourer, a valued cook and manservant, a metal worker and an inveterate traveller who saw much of Europe as far as Constantinople, for example. And he so much loved Italy, where he worked as a welder for a number of years, that he later claimed to have taken the name Fernando in honour of the Italian people. According to documents in the Italian archives, Fernando gave his parents' surname as Silva, thus linking him through his father's side to the South Asian and Indian Oceanic world and their global diasporas reaching from Australia to England and beyond. Indeed, in Europe, Fernando moved among a vibrant global network of, of non-white workers, sailors, traders and others who had long dominated the fluid and shifting world of port cities, including his own birthplace in Australia. They, like he, were both the products of various imperial and colonial worlds, but as itinerant subjects lived just beyond their reach. This dynamic diversity brought a myriad of non-white ex-colonials, ex-indentured, itinerant workers of colour, sailors and seamen into contact with Aboriginal Australia itself in the 19th century. And this was the Australia that Fernando had known in his childhood. Thus, if you like, when he left for good in the early 20th century, Fernando followed a well-trodden route outwards from his homeland to pursue his own travels beyond Australian shores. So it's a delight to be here in London uh, to celebrate his achievements with you tonight and um, I hope that when you next walk around Bishopsgate or along the Strand or, or if you visit Hyde Park Corner you'll think about the traces of Fernando's presence. He brought with him in his person and in his words and actions the fact of Aboriginal Australia's persistence and defiance. Thus, however little known among his own people in Australia, and however ephemeral his impact, for me, A.M. Fernando has changed forever what it, we mean by Aboriginal and Australian history in the first half of the 20th century. Great, Thanks. thank you. Um, so, so, first of all, I just want to say this is a wonderful book. You know, you have an incredible subject here. Um, when I first read it, I was just shocked that there was somebody like him living here, well, living in Australia and then coming here and then engaging in all this political activism on his own, you know, a uh, hundred years ago in some cases. So it's, he was an incredible individual, incredibly tenacious, individualistic, resilient. Um, we'll talk, talk some more about what he had to go through. Um, but what I, what I want to know is, why did you decide to write about him? How did you first come across him? And um, yeah, why did you choose him as a subject? Uh, well, um, he's an extraordinary topic to write on, so um, it was um, an incredible privilege to have that opportunity to find out more. Um, 
I'd heard about the protests outside Australia House and so it was indeed the fact that it struck me as such an extraordinary story that I wanted to find out more about the context. Um, I'd been working previously on uh, Anglo-Australian humanitarian network, um, many of whom were actually based in London and working around the Anti-Slavery and Aborigines Protection Society and were exchanging a lot of information and indeed were inside Australia House around about the same time as Fernando was on the street, um, actually taking deputations to the High Commissioner to complain about events in Australia, particularly in the 1920s when there are a couple of um, infamous massacres of Aboriginal people involving police that actually made it to the press even in London. Um, and so there were deputations going on there. So for me, it wasn't that I was unaware of um, the international interest in Australian Aboriginal affairs, but that, nor was I unaware of Aboriginal people in Australia being very active and vocal at this time. Now I'm talking about the 20s here. Um, but the whole notion of an Aboriginal person actually um, being on the street in London, as you say, that struck me as a remarkable story. And so then I set about trying to make that understandable um, and plausible, but yet retain that sense of him as a remarkable individual. And it is certainly something that people wrote about, that he was an extraordinary commanding person, um, that he was very formidable, um, but also perhaps aspects of him that we might find a little harder to um, deal with if we met him. He was a great one for quoting from the, um, the Old Testament, you know, for biblical quotes, um, quite a kind of thunderous, prophetic individual. Um, so uh, I think um, it, was, it was just, who could, who could miss a story like that? Who could, mm. you know, it's a great thing to be a historian when, when you have these opportunities. Mm. And what was life like for Aboriginal people in Australia when he was born up until the point when he left, which mm. was 40 years, because he lived there for yes. 40 years? before he came to Europe. Yes. So can you tell us something, for those of us who don't know, mm. what the living conditions were like, what the government policy was on mm. Aboriginal people, segregation yeah. and so on? I'll just to take very, very broad strokes, in fact, brush strokes, to take it maybe up to the interwar years when he's actually outside mm. Australia House. So from 1860s through to the 1920s was a time of great change in Australia. So you went from quite um, what we might think of as quite an enlightened era. Um, this is not a story of some kind of progressive arc, but an, but an uneven story. So that um, in the 19th century, from the mid-19th century through, there are a lot of, um, say, mission voices, um, mission missionaries who are very critical of um, colonisation in Australia. This is prior to Federation around about the time of Federation at the end of the 19th century, get a much stronger sense of Australia as a nation, forming as a nation. And so the idea of um, reparation to Aboriginal people for their loss of land uh, really fell away. And new notions of uh, racial um, hierarchies, new notions of um, uh, protection, so-called protection, really came into vogue at that point. So it had a variety of different experiences for Aboriginal people, whether they were in the south, in urban areas, if they were on missions or settlements increasingly. Um, but even from there, uh, some missions were very positive experiences as uh, we look back at those and we see them as the source of 
um, activists of Fernando's own generation. There's a parallel figure in Australia, William Cooper, who came from a mission background and was able to put that into very much into uh, protests by the 1920s and by the 1930s. So a similar kind of trajectory, I think, to Fernando, coming out of that Victorian era, seeing the turn of, of the tide in, around federation, especially in some places such as Western Australia where Aboriginal people were uh, given land or uh, provided with uh, farms to, to um, become independent. And then as settlement increased, saw that land taken away taken back from them and everyone being put under increasing legislation with that increasingly cast them as wards of the state as people who weren't um, able to be independent or autonomous. So when he's protesting in 1903 from a small gold mining town in Western Australia, there's a very big debate in that <coughs> state about the influx of settlers into territory previously. Um, pretty much cushioned and buffered from the effects of colonisation. And that's why it was called the second frontier, if you like, the second process of colonisation. And um, what he saw was debate in the media and even a royal commission about Aboriginal conditions in Australia led to greater forms of control rather than less. So that um, humanitarian debate fed into greater forms of legislation and government control. So by the time he left, um, really everyone who came under the Aborigines Act was identified as therefore a, pretty much a ward of the state, not an individual person who was independent. And that moved forward then into the 1920s and 30s. Similar so-called protective policies designed on the one hand or claimed to protect Aboriginal people from violence and from injustice, provided in fact um, for the conditions for them not to be treated like other members of the population so that the law wasn't being applied to Aboriginal people in the same way. This inequality um, allowing for police involvement in um, violence and vigilantism and massacres that were so strongly protested in the 1920s and 30s. So, um, as a protected person or a ward of the state, what, did, what was the difference between being that and being, say, citizen, an Australian citizen? So, citizenship didn't come in for Aboriginal people until after, into the 70s, and often, people, often 1967, the referendum to include Aboriginal people um, um, voted as members of the Commonwealth of Australia, so actually to be included in the census as members of Australia. So the flow-on effect from that was that the federal vote wasn't um, extended, citizenship wasn't extended to Aboriginal people, although in many of the states and territories there was voting rights. You could actually vote in a number of the different states and territories prior to that, but if you weren't informed of your voting rights then you wouldn't actually necessarily um, make use of that potential so that often Aboriginal people weren't aware that they could actually vote at the state or territory level. But when we think of citizenship, it's usually membership in the nation. Um, so that's not until the 70s, until that formally comes in. Okay, and you mentioned massacres. Mm. Um, how long did they last for and, and what was the nature of them? Uh, well, um, 
who knows? I mean, the ones that are documented are perhaps just the tip of the iceberg, and uh, very rarely would um, the white people involved be brought to justice. So we have numbers of those um, occasionally arising. Um, real problem with accepting um, Aboriginal evidence, as you might expect in a court of law, where they're often very biased judges. Um, and in fact, in the 19th, late of the 1930s, um, in the federal governments was responsible for the Northern Territory, its own judge there, the infamous Judge Wells, known as the flogging judge, who um, completely um, excluded Aboriginal evidence in court. Again, this, this was such a kind of high publicity case that it was reported um, in England as well and became known to the anti-slavery society also. So these moments where the legal system supposedly being applied um, equally to Aboriginal people, um, of course, wasn't um, in terms of the way that the court actually operated. So massacres, well, it's very hard to say. Um, certainly we know that there were two that um, did get to court in the 1920s, mid-1920s, and were reported um, even in the London press. Um, there's a, a short uh, paragraph in the book, which I think sums up something of the conditions of um, life for Aboriginal people at the time. Okay, so we're actually going to um, the early 1900s in Western Australia just to consider the conditions, in, particularly in the gold mining area around where Fernando was. So, so significant research has found that displaced Aborigines hoping for employment in the central gold fields quickly became embroiled in a battle for survival. Aggressive police activity directed against them, including the summary arrest of Aboriginal men and their transportation to jails up north in towns like Wyndham, and the removal of mixed descent children into white institutions down south, resulted in the herding of destitute women, children and old people into town camps. Venereal disease and leprosy were rife, and infected Aboriginal people were either detained and sent into isolation or simply driven into the desert. Indicative of their terror in the presence of white men, when the anthropologist Herbert Baystow tried to take photographs of Aboriginal people in the region in 1903, they fled from his camera as though from a gun. Mm. So in a sense, this is what he was campaigning against for the rest of his life, wasn't it? It was. Mm. This moment where he um, possibly had not... Um, identified himself to authorities or to police as an Aboriginal person prior to this moment. It's quite possible that um, he was... He lived in a, um, a fluid, non-white world in Australia, potentially. We don't, mm. we don't know. But certainly in 1903, he protested on behalf of Aboriginal people living in town camps in these conditions around its gold mining town, Peak Hill and in so doing um, became known to the police and was himself threatened by them. He wrote several letters to the Chief Protector in Perth outlining um, the evidence. Only one of those letters actually turned up. Two never got there. Possibly, I wonder, because the police were in charge of the mail. Seems quite possible. But in that third... Um, petition, he, he shows all the characteristics that he had in later life, which is um, a, a love of words, a real creativity and originality. Part of that petition was, a, if you like, a kind of mock 
uh, royal commission of his own. If we know, if you remember, there's one going on at this time, and some transcripts of evidence. So he writes, he writes a question and answer piece himself, where he um, interviews an Aboriginal man at a local mission that's being lauded as one of the great examples of success in Western Australia, and. Um, he tells he, he gets uh, very different evidence from this inmate about uh, priests with shotguns and, and so on. Hmm. So if we go back to his childhood, can you tell us about his, his parentage, which is very interesting, his racial origins, um, who raised him, uh, his religious background and so on? Hmm. This, all of this first 40 years, and certainly um, his birth and his childhood, comes from his own accounts. So there aren't actually any documentary documents available to um, support his accounts, but there's no reason not to take his word for this because in so many other ways um, you can actually verify what he says through, through the archives. It's very, very unlikely that an Aboriginal man born in the 1860s would be recorded in any documents in Sydney at that time. So according to his own story, he was his Aboriginal mother um, and he was separated very early in life. He never referred to his father in any detail at all, apart from naming him uh, quite late in life when he was arrested by Italian police. He was on a form, it just so happened that form actually required him to name his parents, both of whom he named as Silvers. So he described being separated from his mother and um, being taken in by a white family, possibly a mission family, um, who educated him only to a certain level. He, he said he was rather like an experiment. He was, he was a puppy, um, trained up um, to a certain point. But then, obviously, once he started to take his own education as a, as a means of criticising his situation, something that he did for the rest of his life, he used Christianity and his capacity with words to um, critique um, European culture and civilization. So at that point, um, presumably, he leaves the family and goes back to find his mother, who unfortunately has passed away by the time he returns. Whether he was, um, we're used to, much more used to the, the idea of the stolen generations now, and I think it's, it would be a little risky to um, project that back onto Fernando's story. There's no sense that he was stolen necessarily. Necessarily, It could well be that his mother um, wanted the best for her intelligent son and thought this was a great opportunity for him to go with his family. So his father was perhaps South Asian, we mm. think. Yes. Yes. Um, certainly, uh, certainly before we found the Italian material in, from 1925, it had been assumed that when Fernando said... I've taken on the name Fernando in honour of the Italian people. He meant really as a kind of first name and that it was actually his surname. So even un with the surname Fernando, but also with the surname Silva, it does point to the um, relationships between South Asian Indian people, Sri Lankans, who jumped ship, uh, lived in Australia, um, had relationships with Aboriginal women. There's actually a, a well-documented case from the 1880s, that's 20 years after Fernando was born. Uh, strangely enough, with the surname Fernando, um, this time uh, George Fernando, who was a Sri Lankan sailor who jumped ship and married an Aboriginal woman called Ada Woods. 
and, um, and then moved up to northern New South Wales. We're Aboriginal people today. There's a, a large number of Fernandos there who recall their um, ancestor who um, liked to cook curries. So, so the interconnections between these different populations has a long history in Australia. Mm, because he, uh, if he was, well, he was mixed in some way, and that probably affected his social mobility. I mean, I think that makes a big difference. How dark you are affects how you are received in the world. Because as we're going to come to it, he's, he travelled a lot, and he, had a, he seemed to have a lot of freedom of travel, even though he was interned in, in the First World War. Mm. Um, I think that's very reasonable to, to mm. think that way. Um, and, um, but I'd also say that one of the really important factors about the way that anyone's colour is interpreted is in context, in terms of you know, what trade they're doing, the location, what the situation is. So that, for example, in the small gold mining town, prior to actually protesting uh, Aboriginal conditions, prior to going into the police station, which he did several times apparently, asking for a copy of the Aborigines Act, because Aboriginal people, uh, sorry, police were actually honorary protectors who were um, enforcers of the Aboriginal Act. So he actually went in and asked for copies of this, which was itself quite a, a radical thing to have done, you know, wouldn't have made any friends that way. So, so you can imagine that he was interpreted as an Indian trader um, until he wrote his letters um, in the name of Aboriginal people. And this shifting of his interpretation was something that happened throughout his life. Mm. I think um, being a trader, trader would then have given him a connection to uh, trading networks moving outwards. Um, and he does move around within Australia as well, so we don't have a sense of him being particularly connected to one place, although obviously Sydney was important to him. It's also interesting to remember that when he came to Europe, he was never um, recognised, if you like, as an Aboriginal man. Mm. He was n no one would ever expect an Australian Aboriginal person to be in Europe or England. So he was usually referred to as an Arab mm. or an Indian or sometimes as African. And there is no visual evidence, unfortunately, yet. And there are no <laughs> photographs. Yeah, so that's right. Although but I think something may be lurking somewhere. If you think about his life, <laughs> I'm yeah. sure somewhere somebody's got an image of him. Mm. Um, so he ended up in Austria. And do you want to mm. tell us about Austria and, and Rome and Switzerland? Mm. Oh, just, just very quickly <laughs> yes. then. Um, so yes, he was in Trieste. He'd been in Vienna for a while. Um, he certainly worked in Milan also. And he was in Trieste when the war broke out. So he was confined in the city and then interned in a couple of Austrian uh, prisoner of war camps. Very interesting. Um, he wanted to get access to food parcels from England. He said, I'm imprisoned here as a British prisoner, but I'm not recognised as a Brit British subject because I don't have the right papers. So I'm in this in-between space, which means I don't get access to food parcels, and you needed food parcels to survive. So that letter goes the, all the way back to the colonial office in London and then all the way to Australia, this inquiry about who this man is and what his status is. Um, and if you think about the very important sorting out, talk about drawing over the, 
the, the global colour line, the ways in which different co co colonised peoples are situated within the British Empire in relation to their rights and access to British subject status. So um, that's a very interesting one and of course adds a whole new story to the history of internment in World War I. Um, um, Can I just interrupt you? So he didn't have a passport because no. he didn't need a passport at that time? No. Um, so he wasn't really a citizen of anywhere? No, that's right. Um, and, and you know, Anglo-Australians travelled on British passports and there wasn't really, I mean, Australian passports really didn't come in, I think, till after 1948 or something. So, uh, so yeah, you could travel around on various kinds of documents and he seems to have developed a whole portfolio of documents. So you'd have letters of recommendation, um, you'd have um, uh, work passes, um, and then if you're a lodger, you fill in the form to say, you know, and that would get sent off. So that's how come we know so much about him in Austria because they were filed under the name of the lodger. So this whole record keeping was going on uh, prior to um, passports coming in um, much more after World War One. And in fact, it's interesting to think that internment and prisoners of war and what to do with refugees in World War One was one of the ways that passports were really kind of formalised and borders were formalised. So he's really kind of part of that, in, in that whole history. And then 1921, he pops up again in uh, Bern in Switzerland. He walks into the offices of a progressive newspaper and enthralls the editors to such a degree that they ask him to write it all down in a letter, which he does, which, which is published on the front page an open call to the Swiss people, which is very much about um, contemporary ideas about internationalism and minority rights and the potential of applying new ideas about uh, self-rule to the settler colonies. And he comes up with this um, cutting-edge idea about um, setting up an international committee of European countries to have direct oversight over Aboriginal land in Australia. Because his argument is that Britain can't be trusted to carry out these kinds of... British Australia can't be trusted to carry out reforms and maintain reserve lands. Uh, so he, he wants, uh, say, the Netherlands and Switzerland to be directly responsible for managing, you can imagine, territory in Australia. You know, it's quite a radical idea. Um, and then in 1925, uh, travelling around in Europe, by that point of time, he's uh, working as a cook and a manservant for Douglas Jones in the Inner Temple in London. He met him in the process of a repatriation after the war. And then later with uh, Frank Corshaw, who takes over the same premises. And it seems as though on his kind of summer breaks, he travelled as a trader in Europe. And so 1921, 1925 is a big jubilee in Rome. And it's his beloved Italy. He's a Roman Catholic. It's the most important city for him. And um, he makes use of cheap uh, reproductive printing techniques and um, has a flyer translated into Italian and runs off literally thousands and thousands of copies, 9,000 back in his lodgings, 1,000 on him, and there he is in the doorway of St Peter's handing these flyers out. Um, soon after the um, Australian delegation arrives, um, police are tipped off, and in fact the same flyer that he handed to undercover police is still on his file in the Italian archives. 
Incredible. And then he ends up being deported and crosses the Alps on his Mm. own, like Hannibal, Mm -hmm. all those years before. (laughs) He's such an amazing figure. I just can't believe that he did all this on his own. It's hard enough to be a politically active person as part of a community or an organisation, let alone doing it on your own, you know, all those years ago. Yes. His his aloneness is really interesting. It's something he defended and insisted upon. He didn't want to have anything to do with do-gooding white humanitarians. He's quite specific about that. He wasn't going to come and talk to the anti-slavery society, for example. Um, And there are a number of those Anglo-Australians who were in London who do um, interview him and are interested in him and who write about him. And a very well-known woman, Mary Montgomery Bennett, who, um, who was a Queenslander and then was in London for a while, and uh, wrote a couple of books about Aboriginal Australian conditions. And she's perhaps the most radical figure of her generation among white humanitarians. And then she, after meeting him, and, um, she kind of forced the meeting. He was actually on remand in Brixton Prison. He staged this amazing um, theatrical assault of a, um, a trader in Bethnal Green Market uh, who racially taunted him. He'd surely heard much worse than that. But he um, assaults him or attacks him and well, there's lots of witnesses around. He even brings out a pistol and waves it around and um, ends up in the Old Bailey, in the dock of the Old Bailey, and um, in his 60s at this point, and uh, completely admits to the crime, but he says the reason he had to act was that his belief in British justice had been so shaken by his experience in Australia and by the racism in London and the way the police didn't intervene on his behalf, that he had to take this action. And indeed, um, it was accepted by the judge. Um, And one of the few comments about Fernando by Australian authorities um, um, comes sort of via a a letter written to them by an Australian, an Anglo-Australian in London, who says, not only did Fernando say this, but one of the leading judges in England accepted the argument, and worse still, it's going to be reported in the press, not only in London, but in Australia as well, where all the Australian people will will hear that this is how Australia's been discussed um, Mm. in, in the mother country, in the home country. Do you want to read the section about, there's a a wonderful section where he talks about the experience of um, being in London, our lovely city. (laughs) It is a lovely city, but yeah. Okay, so, and we're talking about, as I said, the common streets around here. On the streets of London, Fernando's blackness was never directly attributed to self-professed origins in Aboriginal Australia. Mostly he was interpreted as an Arab, an Indian, or occasionally a Negro. In the 1920s, Indians and Arabs were in particular derided for their colonial struggles against British forces. And thus, when Fernando was told in no uncertain terms to go back home, it was invariably to India or Palestine, never Australia. Fernando described his mostly hostile reception from this, from in a series of notebooks he kept in late 1929 and early 1930. And um, thank you very much to Nick, Nick Marno and family for those. In their pages, he noted down the language of racism he encountered, thus documenting a vernacular that was both local and transnational in its origins. Among the racist and, to a lesser extent, sexist epithets applied to Fernando were black bastard, coon, sambo, black beast, 
coolie, nigger, dirty black dog, alien and cunt. Several of these terms, like sambo and coolie, indicate the influence of American racial idiom as well as that of the colonies and contemporary London slang. Fernando is also called Snowball and Charlie White, and so it seems that his level of education and his fluent English may have earned him acrimony from black as well as white. Do you want to read the second paragraph? Mm-hmm. Oh, Which bit? Sorry. Uh, oh, you did that. Oh, you did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Um, so yes. So in London, he then becomes manservant to uh, lawyers. Can you tell us about that story and about his protest in his lunch hour? (laughs) So he was um, in this um, wonderful Georgian building in uh, the Inner Temple, right near the Rosicrucian Church there, uh, just off Fleet Street, where he worked for Douglas Jones and then Frank Corshaw for a number of years um, as a very valued uh, cook and manservant uh, running legal rooms, basically. Um, apparently he was very thrifty and uh, um, a great um, saucer of um, food from local markets and uh, so there was a very warm relationship with both of those families that lasted really for the rest of his life. Um, both lawyers um, were character witnesses at his trials, the one that I mentioned 1929 for the assault and again 1938. And indeed, it was just a, a block or two down the road from the Strand. Uh, so I can imagine him walking down there, as you say, on his day off. Um, he was a toy trader, often by trade, and so he was there with um, all the paraphernalia of a trader. And if you look at photographs from this time and very, very vibrant street culture. I mean, it was so vibrant that there are lots of council concerns about the level of noise, the pedestrian traffic, and the fact that uh, curb, curbside t- traders are, are both noisy and you know, obstructions to the flow of pedestrians. So he, he really would have had to um, you know, be, be as dramatic as he could to be heard in all of this cacophony, and that's exactly what he did. He used some of the most favourite and um, favourite toys of the time that children loved, which were these little uh, twopenny inflatable rubber skeletons, were all the rage apparently, and, um, and so he had them pinned onto a piece of black cloth that he would drape around his shoulders, rather as a toy trader would display their ways. Um, you know, often there were little wind-up toys, you'd demonstrate them. So um, he'd do that, and then after his stint outside Australia House, where um, it's not entirely clear, but presumably where if you came to buy one of these skeletons, he would then advise you that, in fact, you are participating in a political protest because they were representative of what was happening to Aboriginal people in Australia. So if you think again of the massacres, one in particular, the remains of Aboriginal people had been burned, but bones still survived. And this notion of the dead continuing in the present, which reminds me of your comment about how alone he was, that he was, he said, always guided by his mother Mm. as a very living presence. So in that sense, was never alone. Mm. 
And then from there down to Hyde Park where he donned the same thing and harangued the crowd. Mm. I mean, I'm very interested in who he had relationships with, but you don't, we don't know, you don't know. Um, whether he married, whether he had children, mm. what, he, what he'd gone mm. up to, really, if mm. anything. Mm. You suspect he might not have got up to anything. Yes, although... I don't yeah. believe that. <laughs> it worries me that I didn't dwell on it now. It says something more about me. As a fiction writer, that's what, you know, that's the sort of thing yes. you're really interested in. Yeah. So, he, no, um, he's well known for being very affectionate towards children, and this is, this is where you do see his warmth. Uh, so for Douglas Jones, daughter Cressida, he, you know, so this sending of to, of um, and to Andrew Crawshaw, sending, sending money or gifts or tokens or to be remembered by the children is very important to him. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to ask one more question and then throw it open to the audience. Um, can you tell us a bit about the end of his life? So one more dramatic appearance in court and some of the most remarkable testimony by any Aboriginal activist, I think, um, that's ever been recorded. Um, he, he spoke there of his, his bitter education in white justice, um, words that were reported um, in Australia. Um, from there on, life did get increasingly difficult. He had lived for a while at, um, after leaving the employ of his um, two supporters, the lawyers. He had lived in the Salvation Army hostel uh, in, Middlesex, in Middlesex Street. He'd also been for a number of years um, interned. He'd lived on the streets. Um, he'd lived a rough life, um, but it was a long life. Mm. Uh, so by the Second World War, he was finding it increasingly difficult, it sounds, to hold things together. And um, at some point, um, the land the landlord was unable to really look after him anymore, and so he was committed to Clavery Hospital, which had been an asylum, but was had remade itself quite recently as a modern, very modern hospital, just to the north of London, mm-hmm. and um, that included um, basically an old age people's home section where they didn't have separate old age homes at this time. So hopefully he lived in a fairly um, open kind of environment there through to the end of his days um, in 1949, so when he was in his 80s. Um, at that point, his death certificate says that he died of um, various heart problems and circulation issues and dementia as well. Mm. Um, and perhaps the saddest part of it, because he never went back to Australia, um, In 1925, just jumping back, when he was asked where he was going to be extradited to from Italy, he said, well, it couldn't be Australia. He could never go back because he had protested there and it would never be safe for him to go back. So his sense was he could never return. Um, So he did die in England and uh, we don't know where he was buried, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. There's uh, this final kind of gap, many, many gaps in the story, and the last one is where he was buried. It would have been in a common grave, of course, um, which would have been unmarked, but yet it would still have been recorded in, in the death, in the registers in the cemetery. So up to this point, we haven't been able to find out where, um, in the many different smaller cemeteries that he could have been, his body, his remains could have been sent to. Mm. Actually, I have another question. Um, research. 
I mean, you started this a long time ago. Can you tell us something about the process of research and the discoveries that you made, mm. and the people you met? Mm. Well, first of all, um, I was lucky enough to have a number of different uh, research assistants, some wonderful um, assistants from um, postgrads, three in particular, one here in England, um, who's now back in Australia and is a, a published fiction writer herself and would like to um, write a fictionalised treatment of, of Fernando's story. Um, but also in Austria, wonderful man there and um, a wonderful woman in Italy and of course with you know the language issues there so I'm very lucky to have had their support and the fact that they became totally wrapped up in the story also um, so what it meant was uh, going to the few sources that were available a few newspaper reports of his testimony in, in the courts that I spoke about. And um, in 1960, um, an interview with Mary Bennett, who had met him, where she reflected back near the end of her life to um, Fernando. So really very few sources. And then um, just chipping away. I guess it becomes an obsession, you know, continually um, trying to think around obstacles. Um, in one case, the wrong date was recorded in some of the um, courtroom testimony. So that threw us off the track for a while. Um, and then, of course, um, through... Um, so Douglas Jones is mentioned in one of the newspaper articles as a supporter of Fernando, and so then being able to follow up through then his descendants and also with Andrew Corshaw as well. That started to unlock all kinds of mm. new information. And how long did it take, the parole process? Oh, on and off, it's it's about ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Great. Okay. Um, does anyone have any questions? You must have. Yes, Lynn. <laughs> First of all, thank you, Brian. This has been absolutely fascinating. That what I wondered whether um, Fernando had, I, I suppose, culturally, whether he, he he saw the future of Aborigines in Australia as as assimilated or as having separate lands, or, and what he, um, you mentioned land rights that stage. So, so could you say a bit more about what he saw as, yes. as the future of, of Aboriginals in terms, I mean the desire of the future, yes. for, for, in terms of, of culturally whether they should become like white Australians or whether they should develop their own culture? Mm. Thank you for that question. Um, Yes, it's uh, really interesting to look at his 1925 flyer because there he is in Rome and part of his address to British people who were there for the Jubilee is to ask them to look around at the ruins of the Roman Empire. And his argument is that all empires become corrupted by their own brutality um, and by inflicting on others suffering, they become brutalised, they become savages. And that all such corrupt systems must fail and fall apart. And we need to bring God in here as well, because as a highly, um, you know, very much a Roman Catholic who believed in an Old Testament God and the idea of, you know, God's judgement and redemption and so on. The idea that the Aboriginal people were closer to God because they were less corrupted by civilization that had taken a long turn. 
So he was very much into European culture and European civilisation, but that it would be renewed through being handed on to less corrupted people in the world. And the Aboriginal people were one of those groups of people. Um, there's been some interesting work on um, the whole idea of the exile, narratives of exile and return in um, Australian Aboriginal history, political history, in the ways in which biblical stories of return and being the chosen people um, were, were often um, uh, Aboriginal people identified with those stories and were encouraged to identify. Um, so Fernando's interested in, it seems, the book of Job, which is much more a story about the brutality that occurs from the return, but there's already another people there. So it's a much more complicated and interconnected story. And I think what he's challenged by is the settler colonial issue. So the colonisers aren't going to leave. How do you live with those with them? And one way I think was to return the um, all the promise to civilisation, all its claims, to return them through um, to to European a European way of life through an Aboriginal influence. So yes, land was important to him. He agreed with the editors in 1921 that the Indian reserve system was important. And he was in line there with a lot of other people of his generation. The significance of um, engaging with um, the incoming culture via your own culture, your own community, your own space. That was kind of um, sort of accepted um, best practice. Um, and I think so I think he takes it to a new level. And I think that he forces us to question the idea of what Aboriginal and what European is in this context because he's an Aboriginal man who never actually really speaks about an Aboriginality that we would think of today as Aboriginality. He doesn't talk about language or country. He talks about um, being a black Australian, uh, fighting against a, a murderous frontier. And he uses the story of Herod and the death of, and the murder of the innocents to kind of bring that to life for white audiences. Um, and notably, he doesn't talk about other Aboriginal people like himself in, urban, in the urban south who were politically active at this time. So he's mobilising a certain kind of story about Australia and its potential to redeem Europe, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, but I, I was wondering how much um, you said that um, these, these sort of low protests got quite a lot of. It's very difficult to follow that follow that thread through very clearly, but um, certainly um, both court cases were reported very briefly in the Sydney Morning Herald in particular. And it, it, we do know that um, an Aboriginal activist, Pearl Gibbs, uh, who was active at that time and became part of the Day of Mourning, which was a silent march through the streets of Sydney in 1938, the sesquicentennial of Australia. And she also actually wrote to the League of Nations and asked for a, directly and asked for an intervention. 
Um, so it seems that she took the clippings to the um, community of Fernandos in northern New South Wales, who must have read of this story, of course, and have believed that this was uh, one of their own family who'd gone overseas. But I think it's also the case that at the end of World War II, um, there was a kind of a break in memory for Aboriginal communities and Anglo-Australian communities, you know, or British. I mean, these big world events often kind of break memory. So there does seem to have been um, uh, a need to recall the story of Fernando several times over. So whilst there is some claim on him by Fernando's in northern New South Wales that has persisted through, there's still um, very little awareness in a national sense among Aboriginal leaders and activists still today. So with the story of the book, from the book, um, or there was a, um, a, a Radio National documentary in 2007, each time um, a new iteration of, or a larger story about Fernando comes out, there seems to be still this surprise, a sense of surprise and um, admiration. And I wonder if we've actually, because we've been through the sort of 1990s and 2000 decades where we've gone through the history wars and we've gone through the kind of um, whole um, denial of Aboriginal history and so on. We've now moved into a, perhaps a new era where a man of mixed descent who left Australia to make his protests will find a, a, a clearer place within the story that's no longer so nationalist or, you know, it was about a nation coming to terms with these, these um, shared histories or conflicting histories or whatever. So maybe it's a, a new era and maybe, maybe he'll fit in better and kind of be remembered more strongly. Hi, Fiona. Uh, thanks for that talk. Um, you compared his, um, his activism to contemporary historical activism in Australia by Aboriginal I guess I'm just taking up your last point. Um, do, you think it's, do you think it's possible or indeed useful to place him in a, in a longer history of international protest by Aboriginal people? Do you see him as a precursor to, say, Pernambuco coming and planting the Aboriginal flag here? Or the United Nations being involved. Um, do you see him as a precursor to that, or is it separate from that, or um, speaking into that kind of history? Well, usually, previously the story has been that Aboriginal people are actually overseas and actually engaging directly with a kind of global debate, in the global debate about Aboriginal Australia, only after the Second World War, Second World War and into, particularly into the 70s. So in that sense, he is um, an earlier example. So he, he sort of breaks open that narrative and so forces us to shift that back to the 1920s, 1910s, 1900s. Um, so, um, and that is, I think, very important, that actually physically being there is a very significant thing. But I guess also there's a kind of um, an international outlook that goes right back to the moment of colonisation. And uh, you could actually talk to 
So Bannelong, who went with Governor Philip very early, very early in the story of Sydney Cove, to England and back. So this this whole um, outward-looking worldview um, is a kind of colonial moment. So whether people went by themselves or were taken, if you don't think that counts too much, you know, presence in Europe um, has certainly had that great long history. But then you could also open it up further and talk about um, Aboriginal people as a very mobile, um, very dynamic people or peoples, cultures, uh, traders within their own country. So again, you could actually disrupt that whole notion about um, being, you know, sedentary and in one place versus the idea of movement and mobility that has to happen outside of Australia. And once you start breaking down that notion of national boundaries, um, then you can focus on histories of exchange with Indonesia or the, the, the Indian Ocean. And you think about all the Aboriginal people who were guides, um, who went and helped to map the coast of Australia very early on. So this, this sort of incredibly dynamic, um, worldly, modern way of being um, that is, in, in a way, puts marginal figures like Fernando right at the very cutting edge of modernity in the 20th century. Mm, thanks. Yes. Thank you very much for such an inspiring story. Um, why was he such a known protester? And why did he turn his back on political strategic alliances or partnerships or mm. allies. Mm. Yes. Um, mm. um, well, with Anglo-Australians or white people, that because that smacked of humanitarianism and paternalism, maternalism, it, you know, that does seem to be fundamental um, and that's what he learned so painfully in 1903. There may have been all this press about um, injustices towards Aboriginal people, but that just fed into greater government control. Um, but in terms of alliances, if you think about, you know, Pan-African movements, you think about um, um, what was going on in India at the time, and he's very much aware of that. He does compare Aboriginal Australia to um, conditions for Indian people, he talks about the mutiny in the 1850s and also about very much about current events. Um, so there had been some, some um, British troops had fired on demonstrators in India at the time and also Palestine, um, who's also very aware of these contemporary events. But it, it has to be said as well that he, it's not just that he didn't like to uh, align himself with, with groups, but that he saw Aboriginal Australia as significantly different to, for example, um, African-American campaigners. So he's standing at Hyde Park. Um, Marcus Garvey spoke there sometimes, and League of Coloured People um, um, with Harold Moody. I mean, there's, there's a whole number of different groups that, that might have indeed shared his views. And considering he did refer to himself as black, a black Australian. But but also he was, um, he, he believed in a racial hierarchy. So he wanted to um, argue for the specific qualities of Aboriginal Australians in contrast to people from Africa, for example. So that, you know, that is a hard part of this story. 
um, is that his own uh, racialising worldview, I think, fed into that sense of um, wanting to keep himself separate from other non-white people who were politically active at the time. Mm. I, I was just wondering if it, if it wasn't also the case that, that perhaps Indian and African-American activists, Africans were, were also a bit racist towards Aboriginals, that he didn't find mm. it particularly welcoming mm. if, if, he, if he had sought an alliance. That's true, and well, certainly, I know Marcus Garvey wrote a, a great long poem, and there's something like verse 27 or something. He he says that you know the, the British Empire is so bad. Look what happened to the Aboriginal people, as though it's all over with. You know that they that so um, so the idea of an educated, um, sophisticated Aboriginal man um, protesting in Europe didn't fit in with that model at all, and. Um, um, so I was going to say something else there as well, um, but it's gone from my mind. So. But also, if he was on his own, yeah. then it would have been quite hard to be heard mm-hmm. amongst African Americans and, and mm. other sort of. I know what I was going to say as well. He was very anti-communist, and um, certainly there were connections with communism floating around at this time. Um, he was hostile to the Bolsheviks for what they'd done to Christianity in Russia. Mm. How much time have we got, Cass? Five. Five minutes. Any other questions? Yeah. Can you finish the story about what happened when he was in the prison camp? Um, it ironic that the British didn't recognize him, yet the Austrian-Hungarians did. Well, not ironic, because they were minorities. And you said he was imprisoned in, in Austria and jail. Yeah. I, I assume because he was a, an alien. Yeah. So if you could finish that, not maybe since you mentioned anti-communism, is there an official response from either the Catholic Church or the... Um, okay. The fascists yeah. to this position. Yes. Okay. Um, so it's the way that internment camps operated. Although they're run by the Austro-Hungarians, they are. Um, it's actually, for example, the American embassy that overviews conditions in the camps, and there's a certain kind of British authority structure in there. So there's several layers going on in terms of what his status is. And it seems so, uh, for example, the British would kind of run their section of the camp. So um, he was nominally British, but then once he got there, he couldn't actually prove it with documentation. Uh, When the American um, representative comes to speak with him, um, he then starts referring to Fernando as um, a Negro, which may be a direct translation of Austrian for uh, black Australian. So it all gets very complicated in terms of who actually has authority over him. Um, and so, he's, so he needs to write to embassies, then back to the colonial office and um, who then want to find out, and then he becomes a Negro born in Australia. So then it becomes a matter of where he was born, uh, rather than a kind of racial issue. If he's born in Australia, that would count. Um, so that's not really answering your question very well, but I, you know, I think it's a very interesting one in terms of how that was resolved. And really, it was Lord Grey in the colonial office who just wrote a note in his file 
saying, well, we'll find in his favour because probably it'll take too long to try and find the documents. Um, but it still continued back and, you know, they still reported there was no evidence. But by then it was too late. And then once he got the food parcels, that is ipso facto um, confirming his British status. So once he had the parcels, then he effectively had the paperwork. Um, and then as he was repatriated, if you didn't have your papers, you'd lost your papers in the war, coming through Switzerland, that's where you get issued with a British passport. Mm. So he gets issued with a British passport and he's repatriated to Britain, but of course that's not his home. Um, and he comes through Glasgow, which is quite nice. And, uh, so that's, that's that bit of the story. And what was the second half? The Italian church and the Yes, he um, did try and um, have an, uh, uh, um, an audience with the Pope. He, he tried to um, talk to the Vatican about the situation, but he was turned away, he said, because he wasn't uh, you know, really an important figure or representative. The um, Italians were allies of Britain at this time. According to Fernando, Britain dominated the League of Nations. And um, in so doing, it allowed Italy to increase its colonial interests. So there was an unholy alliance in his view. And certainly it looks to me as though the fascists were very concerned that there was an anti-British demonstration going on. They were less interested in it being an Aboriginal one. And that often happened. Um, for example, um, there was a, a secret uh, confidential report into his 1921 letter and the greater concern of the person reporting to Australian authorities was Fernando's apparent um, support for Germany and his argument that Germany should not have had the, its colonies taken away um, when it lost the war. And of course, uh, ironic for Fernando was that some of those colonies were given to Australia to have mandate over. So. Um, Yes, certainly the Italian fascists had a position on that, but it was more of this notion of an anti-British protest. Um, seeing as we have descendants, um, which is such an unusual situation yeah. of the, the two lawyers, Jones and Corshaw, who helped Fernando, um, and I think someone who met Fernando as a child, I wondered if you'd like to say anything. Sorry to throw this at you, you don't have to, <laughs> but it's I such an unusual... From the age of my age, you're about five until uh, I was about 15 when he died. And my memory of him is entirely benign. He was a man of great passions, but to the child's mind, he was noticeably radiated benignity. And I also feel in retrospect that he gave a very noble impression, and that's how I would like him to remember. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. And yeah, we are. Um, the only thing we know about Fernando, really apart from his notebooks we had, was um, my mother was a little girl when Fernando arrived on the scene. Yes. <clears throat> and just through her few, her few memories of her, but the oh, good. Yeah, that's her, um, that's her child. <laughs> just a few moments. I mean, it's, he's actually woven into the, into the fabric of the history of our family. Mm. So, I mean, he must have had such an impact on her. But uh, one of the interesting things is, um, 
Don't have to think about the internals. Don't have to make the internals if that's what I'm walking for. Uh, Douglas was as well. Mm. In, um, in Rulai. Yeah, in Germany. But completely the other extreme. Um, in later years, he says that they were the happiest, some of the happiest years of his life. Yes. Because uh, there was this sort of class structure mm. existed in that, in room like that. Mm. So, and he was one of the other classes. And they had musical concerts and art, art classes. And it seemed so ironic that, uh, mm. that they had this connection to well after that. And they'd both been to internment. Thank you. Thanks very much for that. Um, I think we should leave it there unless somebody's got a pressing question. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Fiona. Oh, and that I'd like to thank everyone as well, particularly you, for that lovely interview. Thank you so much. But you're a brilliant speaker. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful book and it's on sale over there. And also Caroline and, and Gemma Romain as well, very much. Thank you so much. Okay.